Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. We are talking about chapter 8, part, sorry, part 8, chapter 7. I'm going to sneeze. I'm going to sneeze at some point in the next one to three minutes. Anyway, <clears throat> um, got a guest reader, special guest reader today. I've been asking over the last few days for people to help out and Dan has done that. So today's reading will be by Dan, also known as, or probably better known as on this forum, Acoustic Eels. So, Acoustic Eels, you are an absolute legend. I can't thank you enough for helping me out. My cold slash flu, whatever it is, is not easing up at all. And um, I'm in just struggle town. So, uh, yeah, you're a lifesaver. Dan is also Acoustic Eels. He's also a an extremely talented musician, uh, pianist to be exact. So I'm going to direct you guys to have a look on his Instagram. I hope you don't mind me doing this, Dan, but I'm guessing you don't because I can see you're a Twitch, Twitch streamer, so you're putting it out there for the public. So look him up on Instagram. It's... I don't know how to say this. W-A-N-A-M-A-D-W. Wanamad-W. W-A-N-A-M-A-W. All is one big word. No idea what that means. Probably something to do with your surname or something like that. But Dan... Anyway... I hope you don't mind me plugging your Instagram, but I'm going to do that anyway. And yeah, big thanks for doing the reading today. Before we get to that though, let's discuss chapter 7, Love. I'm loving getting to know Hanno. And might he catch up in school with the help of his new friend? I thought that scene where he was hanging out with that new friend, and they were actually sort of doing their homework together, and it seemed like maybe that's, you know... That's building a little bit of enthusiasm between them for the work. Techrific says, Hanno drawing those two horizontal lines under his name. That's very sad. It's not even foreshadowing anymore. It's just telling us straight up. After Hanno, Hanno the deluge. Yeah, Hanno seeing himself as the end of the family tree is particularly sad. About Hanno's bad teeth, wasn't that a thing with old Johan Sr.? Another symbol of decay, perhaps? I like seeing Hanno with a new friend. Also, what Anders said in the podcast about Hanno finding, finally finding in music something that doesn't just bring sadness to him. Kai seems to be a great source of joy too. At least he gets to experience some happiness before all hell breaks loose. Yeah. It's kind of nice to just see a child in finding some enjoyment in childhood but then bittersweet knowing that he's probably going to have a hard life. Uh, I'm liking Gerda, says Tekrific. More and more, she unveils how shallow Thomas's sense of art is. He's content to recite the odd line of poetry, but has resigned to live a conventional life. She blames Gerda and her side of the family for Hanno's obsession with music, but fails to see that it's in combination of the two that has brought forth the artist. Acoustic Eel says, I'm also glad Hanno has a friend. I'm surprised they're not 
trying to separate them because Kai is lower class. I guess Thomas's desire for some masculinizing influence of Hanno outweighs classism in this case. Acoustic Eels also says, Man, the one day I'm behind, we get a whole chapter about music. That's my thing. Thomas does not have a good point. Sorry, Thomas does have a good point about classical music snobbery. It's something that's still a problem in classical music in 2022. And something we, as music people, have to work on. As someone who is about to have two degrees in music, I do appreciate Bach and Counterpoint and the classical greats. I also enjoy some indie music and pop. They do different things and they it doesn't make sense to compare them to each other. As Techrific said in their comment, it's apples and pears. They can both exist, coexist. In fact, I recently started a TikTok account where I take other videos and set them to music by composing original fugues, both at the same time. Very cool. Um, feel free to drop a link to that too in um, your next comment, Acoustic Eels. Uh, in Of Human Bondage, which we read a year and a half ago, wow, a character was similarly upset about Wagner. I explained what the deal is with him in a little write-up back then. Can't believe this is relevant a second time. The short version of it, he wrote very unusual harmonies, very long operas, and wrote for very large orchestras, and people found it outrageous. Also, Hitler really liked Wagner, so he basically is cancelled now. Controversial figure. You know, he's always sort of thrown in the mix as this guy who just stirred everything up. Um, unusual harmonies is such a... F it's hard to come up with unusual harmonies, and it's so good when people pull them off, you know. And um, that's such a funny thing for people to be outraged about back then, I think. I find that hilarious. Anyway, that sneeze never came. It still feels like it's on the verge of happening, but there you go. Lucky for you, you didn't have to hear me sneeze. I'm going to turn off my microphone now and hand over the rest of the podcast to Acoustic Eels. Uh, to read you in a nice, clear, not congested, nasally voice. <laughs> so enjoy that. All right, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. Hi, this is Dan, a.k.a. Acoustic Eels, reading Chapter 8 of Part 8 of Woodenbrooks. And this is the Woods translation by the dubs. Of late... When the family sat down to dinner each Thursday, surrounded by the statues of gods smiling calmly down from the wallpaper, there was a new and very serious topic of conversation, which elicited only cool, standoffish looks from the ladies Buddenbrook from Breitestrasse, and the most excited looks and gestures from Frau Permanator. With her head laid back and both arms stretched straight ahead or straight up, she spoke out of anger, resentment, out of genuine, deeply felt outrage. She would proceed from the specific case at hand to more general observations about humankind as a whole, interspersed with dry, nervous coughs related to her digestive problems. She let out little trumpet blasts of disgust in the throaty voice she always used when she was angry, and it sounded like, Tiri Trishke, Grunlich, Permanator. But the remarkable thing was that a new cry had been added, and she uttered it with indescribable scorn and venom. It sounded like, The Prosecutor. But the moment Director Hugo Weinschenk entered the dining room, still dressed in his frock coat and late as always because he was buried under work, and strode to his chair with an unusually lively swing to his gait 
his clenched fist balanced in front of him, his lower lip drooping impudently under his small mustache, the conversation would die, and a painful, stifling silence would hang over the table, until the senator would extricate them from their embarrassment by asking quite casually how the affair was proceeding, as if it were just another normal bit of business. And Hugo Weinschenk would reply that the affair was going quite well, famously, in fact, as was only to be expected, and then would blithely change the subject. He was much more cheerful of late, and let his eyes roam about with a certain wild unflappability, and frequently asked, though without receiving an answer, about how Gerda's fiddle would be doing. Sorry, I lost my spot. About how Gerda's fiddle was doing. He chatted away merrily about all sorts of things. The only problem was that, in his naive candor and extraordinary high spirits, he did not pay sufficient attention to what he was saying, and every now and then he would tell a story that was somewhat out of place. One of his anecdotes, for example, concerned a wet nurse who suffered from such an awful case of flatulence that the child she took she was nursing, sorry, who suffered from such an awful case of flatulence that the child she was nursing took ill. And in a manner which he doubtless thought was humorous, he imitated the family physician who had shouted, Who is making this stink? Who is making this stink here? And he noticed, too late, or perhaps not at all, that his wife was blushing terribly, that old Madame Brunbrook, Thomas, and Gerda sat there like statues, that the ladies Brunbrook exchanged pointed glances, that even Rika Severin, at the far end of the table, looked offended and simply gazed straight ahead, and that only old Council Kruger managed to splutter softly. And what was Hugo Weinschenk's problem? This earnest, industrious, but chipper man, with a rough exterior and no social graces whatsoever, this man, who devoted himself to his work with a dogged sense of duty, this man was alleged to have committed a serious offense, not just once, but repeatedly. Indeed, he was accused of, and had been indicted for, having on several occasions engaged in a business maneuver that was not just dubious, but contemptible and criminal. And he would have to face trial, the outcome of which was uncertain. And what were the charges against him? There had been fires in various localities, large conflagra conflagrations, and each of them would have cost his insurance company, which had underwritten the policies in question, large sums of money. It was claimed, however, that Hugo Weinschenk, having immediately received confidential news of these calamities from his agents, had, with fraudulent intent, reinsured the policies with other insurance companies, thereby passing the losses on to them. And now the matter lay in the hands of the prosecutor, and the prosecutor was Dr. Moritz Hagenström. Thomas, old Madame Buddenbrook said to her son when they were alone, "'Tell me, please, I don't understand. What am I to think of all this?' And he replied, "'Well, my dear mother, what can I say? Unfortunately, there is some doubt whether everything was as it should be. But, on the other hand, I think it unlikely that Weinschenk is guilty to the extent that certain people would have you believe. In business, today, there are certain practices that call them usages. And a usage, you see, is a maneuver that is not quite all that it should be, not quite in accordance with the letter of the law, and looks rather dishonest from the layman's point of view.' but which by the tacit agreement of the business world is common enough. It's hard to draw the line between a usage and something much worse, but no matter. If Weinschenk has done something wrong, it is, prob it is most probably nothing more dreadful than what many of his colleagues have done, and got away with. But that does not mean I think the trial will go in his favor. He might be acquitted in a large city, perhaps, but here, where everything comes down to cliques and personal motives, well, he should have thought of that when he chose his lawyer. We have no outstanding lawyers here in town, no eminent intellect whose oratorical skills are overwhelmingly convincing, who knows all the tricks of the trade, 
and is well-versed in even the most ticklish business practices. <clears throat> you see, all our lawyers hang together. They have lunch or dinner together. They have so many interests in common, sometimes even relatives, and they have to show some consideration for each other. In my opinion, it would have been wiser if Weinschenk had chosen a local attorney. But what did he do? He felt it necessary, I repeat, felt it necessary, which makes one wonder about how easy he is in his own conscience, to enlist a lawyer from Berlin, Dr. Breslauer, a regular hellraiser with a smooth tongue, a crafty virtuoso of the law, with a reputation for having helped keep any number of shady bankrupts out of prison. And there's no doubt he will handle the matter with shrewdness equal to his very high fee. But will it do any good? I can see it coming. Our gallant local attorneys will refuse to be impressed by the gentleman, will fight him tooth and nail, and the court will have a much more open ear for Dr. Hagenstrom's argument. And the witnesses? As far as his own office staff goes, I don't think that they are especially devoted to him. What we who wish him well call his rough exterior, he calls it that himself, I believe, has not won him any friends. And so, in short, mother, I fear the worst. If disaster strikes, it will be very hard on Erica. But I feel sorry for Tony. You see, she's quite right when she says that Hagenstrom was only too happy to take the case on. It involves us all. And if it ends in disgrace, we shall all be affected. Because Weinschenk is part of the family, after all. He sits at our table. As far as I am concerned, I can manage. I know, sh I know how I shall have to conduct myself. Publicly, I shall stand quite aloof from the whole affair. I dare not even attend the trial, though I would be interested in watching Breslauer. But if I am to protect myself from the charge of trying to influence the outcome, I cannot show any concern whatever. But Tony, I don't even want to think about how sad a conviction would be for her. And when you listen to her loud protests against slander and en envious intrigues, what you hear is fear. The fear that, after all the misfortunes she has had to bear, she may have to forfeit this last honorable position in her daughter's respectable household. Oh, just watch. Her assertions about Weinschenk's innocence will grow louder and louder the more she feels herself hemmed in by doubts. Although he may very well be innocent, absolutely innocent, we'll simply have to wait it out, mother, and be very tactful when dealing with him, Antony, and Erica. But I fear nothing good will come of this. That was all Thomas speaking, by the way. This was still the state of affairs as Christmas approached, and with a pounding heart, Johann counted the days, tearing them off one by one from the advent calendar Ida had made for him, until the day of days would arrive, the page with the Christmas tree on it. There were more and more signs of its coming. On the first day of Advent, a colorful life-size picture of St. Nicholas was hung on the wall in Grandmama's dining room. One morning, Hanno found his bedspread, the rug beside his bed, and his clothes strewn with softly crackling golden tinsel. Then, one afternoon a few days later, as they were sitting in the living room, Papa was stretched out on the chaise longue reading his paper, and Hanno was reading the story about the witch of Andor in Gerok's palm fronds. The maid announced that an old man was at the door, asking about the little boy. It was the same every year, and it was always a surprise. The old man was asked to come in, and he shuffled into the room, dressed in a fur cap and a long fur coat turned inside out, and covered with tinsel and snowflakes, with black smudges on his face, and a huge white beard and unnaturally thick eyebrows, both, du both dusted with sparkling confetti. And just as he did every year, he declared that this sack on his left shoulder was for good children who could say their prayers and contained apples and golden nuts, but that this switch on his right shoulder was for wicked children. It was St. Nicholas. Well, of course, not the real absolutely genuine St. Nicholas. Perhaps it was actually only Wenzel the Barber dressed in Papa's fur coat. 
but if there was such a thing as St. Nicholas, then this was it. And Hanno was thrilled, just as he was every year, and managed with only one or two almost involuntary nervous sobs to say the Lord's Prayer, and was permitted to reach into the sack for good children, which, as always, the old man once again forgot to take with him as he left. Vacation began, and even the moment when Papa read the report card, which had to be issued at Christmas time too, passed without much difficulty. The doors to the Grand Salon were kept closed, guarding mysteries. Marzipan and gingerbread appeared on the table, and it was Christmas out on the streets too. Snow fell, it turned cold, and the sharp, clear air was full of the cheerful and melancholy melodies of black-mustached organ-grinders, Italians who had come to town dressed in velvet jackets for the holidays. Dazzling Christmas displays appeared in the shop windows, and the gay, colorful booths of the Christmas fair had been set up all around the tall Gothic fountain on the market square. Wherever you went, you could smell the sweet fragrance of fir trees being sold for the holiday. Make sure this is still recording. Yes, we are recording. And then at last came the evening of December 23rd and the opening of gifts in the Grand Salon at home on Fischergrube, just for their little family. But that was only the beginning, a kind of dress rehearsal for Christmas Eve, which old Madame Baddenbrook still claimed as her own, when, late in the afternoon on the 24th, the whole clan gathered around the table in the landscape room, even Therese Weisbrot and Madame Kettelsen and Jürgen Kröger, who had come from Wismar. Dressed in her heavy silk dress, with black and grey stripes, wrapped in the gentle scent of patchouli, but with flushed cheeks and excited eyes, the old woman received her guests as they entered, one after another, and with each embrace her gold bracelets jingled softly. She was trembling with excitement and exceptionally silent this evening. "'Good Lord, you're in a dither, mother,' the senator said when he arrived with Gerda and Hanno. "'Everything will be all right. It will all be just as cozy as always,' he added." But as she kissed all three of them, she whispered, for Jesus' sake, and for my dear departed Jean. Indeed, the entire solemn ceremony instituted for the occasion by the late consul had to be carried out to the letter, and a sense of responsibility for seeing to it that the evening proceeded in a worthy fashion, drenched in an atmosphere of profound, serious, and fervent joy, drove the old woman restlessly here and there. From the columned hall, where the choir boys sang St. Mary where the choir boys from St. Mary's had now been assembled, to the dining room, where Rika Severin was putting the final touches on the tree and the presents, then out to the corridor, where a few old people stood around, looking shy and embarrassed, the poor, who were also supposed to share in the distribution of gifts, and back to the landscape room, where she punished every extraneous word or noise with a mute sidelong glance. It was so still that they could hear a distant barrel organ, like the sound from a tinkling music box, it drifted in from some snowy street. And although there were a good twenty people standing or sitting around the room, the silence was deeper than in a church, and the mood, as the senator very carefully whispered to his Uncle Justice, was just a little reminiscent of a funeral. Not that there was any real danger the mood would be broken by the noise of youthful high spirits. One look sufficed to reveal that almost all members of the assembled family were of an age where manifestations of conviviality have assumed time-honored forms. There was Senator Thomas Buddenbrook, whose alert, spirited, even humorous expression was contradicted by the pallor of his face. His wife Gerda, leaning back in her armchair, immobile, her lovely white face turned upward, her close-set blue-shadowed eyes glistening strangely under the spell of the flickering light of the chandelier's crystal prisms. His sister, Frau Permanator, his cousin, Jürgen Kröger, 
the quiet, neatly dressed civil servant, his cousins Friederike, Henrietta, and Fifi, the first two looking skinnier and taller than ever, the latter shorter and plumper, plumper, but all three with faces set in one standard expression, a caustic, malevolent smile, disparagingly directed at all persons and things, as if they had but one constant skeptical question. Really? Well, for the present, we choose to doubt it. And finally, there was poor Ash, Ash Grey Clotilde, whose thoughts were probably focused on dinner. They were all over forty, and the hostess, her brother Eustace, his wife, and Therese Weichbrot, well over sixty. And both Godhold's widow, old Madame Brunbrook, née Stuving, and the now totally deaf Madame Kettleson were already in their seventies. The only person in the, in the bloom of youth was Erika Weinschenk. <clears throat> Certainly she was younger than her husband, the insurance director with graying temples and a small gray mustache that framed the corners of his mouth, who was standing beside the sofa, his close-cropped head outlined against the idyllic tapestry landscape. But whenever her pale blue eyes, Herr Grimlich's eyes, drifted toward him, her full bosom would rise and fall noticeably as she sighed a deep, silent sigh. It was clear that she was hard-pressed by anxious and confused thoughts about usages, accounting, witnesses, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and judges. Indeed, there was probably no one in that room whose mind was not preoccupied with such unchristmas-like thoughts. Frau Permanator's son-in-law stood under indictment, and the entire family was aware that present among them was a man who had been charged with an offense against the law, against civic order and commercial rectitude, an offense that might very well result in shame and a prison sentence and his presence gave the gathering an altogether strange and unnatural character. Christmas Eve at the Buddenbrooks with an indicted man in their midst. Serna Majestic, Frau Permanator, leaned back in her armchair, and the smiles of the ladies Buddenbrook from Breitestrasse became a shade more caustic. And the children? The family's rather sparse progeny? Were they, too, aware of the faintly eerie atmosphere caused by this new and unheard-of state of affairs? As far as little Elizabeth went, it was impossible to judge her mood. Dressed in a little frock, so richly trimmed with satin bows that it obviously reflected Frau Permanator's taste, the child was sitting on her nurse's lap, her thumbs lightly clenched in her tiny fists, and her slightly bulging eyes fixed straight ahead. She sucked on her tongue and occasionally let out a squeak, and then, and then the nurse would rock her a bit. Hanno, however, was quietly sitting on a footstool beside his mother, gazing up at her, at gazing up, like her, at a prism on the chandelier. Christian was missing. Where was Christian? Only at the last moment did they notice his absence. There was something even more fever feverish now about the way Madame Bodenbrook's hand kept moving in a gesture peculiarly her own, from one corner of her mouth up to her coiffure, as if she were tucking back a stray hair. She quickly gave some instructions to Mademoiselle Severin, and the young woman made her way past the choir boys and the poor gathered in the columned hall and hurried down the corridor, where she knocked on Herr Buddenbrook's door. Christian appeared almost at once. He entered the landscape room slowly on skinny, bowed legs. His rheumatism had left him with something of a limp, and rubbed a hand, and rubbed a hand across his bald head. "'Damn,' he said. "'I almost forgot.' "'You almost forgot?' his mother echoed, freezing in place. "'Yes, almost forgot that today is Christmas Eve. I was sitting there reading a book, a travel book, about South America.' Good God, what Christmases we had back then, he added, and was on the verge of launching into a story about a Christmas Eve he had spent in a fifth-rate music hall in London, when suddenly the, ecclesi the ecclesiastical stillness in the room began to have its effect on him, too. He wrinkled his nose and tiptoed to his place. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, the choir boys sang, 
and although they had just been cavorting so loudly out in the hall that the senator had stood at the door for a moment to instill some respect, they sang quite marvelously now. Their bright, pure treble, borne above the lower voices, soared in praise and rejoicing, and lifted every heart, softened the smiles of the spinsters, inspired the old folks to look within and review their lives, and allowed those who still stood in the middle of life, of life to forget their troubles for a while. Hanno let go of his knee, which he had been holding fast until now. He looked very pale. He played with the fringe on his footstool and rubbed his tongue against one tooth, his mouth half open, and an expression on his face as if he were freezing. Every now and then he had to take a deep breath, because the choir that filled the air with its bell-like a cappella carol tugged hard at his heart. He was almost painfully happy. It was Christmas. The scent of fur found its way through the cracks of the high white enameled folding doors, which were still closed tight and the sweet, spicy odor called up in his mind a picture of the dining-room and the wonders inside, an unbelievable, unearthly splendor for which he had waited each year with a pounding heart. What would be in there for him? Everything that he had asked for, of course, because you always got that, unless they had talked you out of it beforehand, saying it was simply impossible. The first thing that would spring up before his eyes, and which would show him where he was to sit, would be his theater, the puppet theater that he wanted so badly and had put right at the top of the list he had given to Grandmama, underlined several times. It had been all he could think of since he had seen Fidelio. As a reward, as a kind of compensation, for a visit to Herr Brecht, Hanau had recently been taken to the theater for the first time, the municipal theater, where from the first tier, right beside his mother, he had breathlessly followed the music and action of Fidelio. And since then, overcome with a passion for the stage, he had dreamed of nothing but opera scenes, had barely been able to sleep. When he met people on the street, who, like his Uncle Christian, were known to be regular theater-goers, Consul Delman or Gosch, the broker, for instance, he felt indescribably jealous. How could anyone bear the happiness of attending the theater almost every evening? If only he could go just once a week, sit there in the hall before the performance, listen to the instruments tune up, and gaze for a while at the closed curtain. Because he loved everything about the theater, the smell of gas lamps, the seats, the musicians, even the curtain. Would his puppet theater be a big one, big and wide? What would the curtain be like? He would have to cut a little hole in it first thing, because the curtain at the municipal theater had a peephole. He wondered if Grandmama, or Mademoiselle Severin, because Grandma could not shop for everything herself, had found the scenery he needed for Fidelio. Tomorrow morning he would shut himself up in a room somewhere and give a performance just for himself. And in his mind he could hear the figure singing, Music was the link that immediately made him feel so close to the theater. Shout for joy, Jerusalem, the choir boys sang to end their program, and after a kind of interwoven fugue, the voices arrived in joyful, peaceful harmony at the last syllable. The echoes of the chord faded away, and deep silence lay over the columned hall and the landscape room. Under the weight of the long pause, all the members of the family gazed at their feet. Only Hugo Weinschenk's eyes roamed bold and unperturbed, around the room. Frau Permanator coughed an audible dry cough that she simply could not suppress. Madame Buddenbrook, however, slowly strode to the table and joined her family, taking a seat on the sofa, which no longer stood off to itself at some distance from the table as in the old days. She adjusted the lamp and pulled the large Bible over to her. The gilt on its immense embossed cover faded with age. Then she set her glasses on her nose, undid the colossal book's two leather clasps, opened it to the bookmark, revealing a heavy, coarse, yellowed page of huge print, took a sip of sugar water, and began to read the Christmas story. 
She read the familiar old words slowly, stressing each in a clear, stirring voice, her joy rising above the pious hush, and all hearts were touched. And on earth peace and goodwill toward men, she said, and no sooner did she fall silent than the columned hall was filled with harmonious voices singing, Silent Night, Holy Night, and the family in the landscape room joined in. They went about it rather cautiously, because most of them were not musical, and now and then a deep voice would sound a note quite inappropriate to the ensemble, but that did not detract from the effect. Frau Permanator's lips quivered as she sang, for the carol sounded sweetest and saddest to a woman whose heart had known a troubled life, and who could cast an eye back over it now, in this brief, peaceful, solemn hour. Madame Kettleson wept silent, bitter tears, although she could hear almost nothing. And now old Madame Buddenbrook stood up. She grasped the hands of her grandson, Johann, and her great-granddaughter, Elizabeth, and strode across the room. The older ladies and gentlemen closed ranks behind her. The younger ones followed and were joined in the columned hall by the servants and the poor, and they all lifted their voices in O Tannenbaum. And Uncle Christian made the children laugh by lifting his legs like a funny marching marionette and singing the silly words, O Tinny Boom. And with every eye sparkling and a smile on every face, they marched through the wide-open folding doors into heaven. The whole room was fragrant with lightly singed evergreen boughs and glowed and sparkled with the light of countless little flames. The sky-blue wallpaper with its white statues of gods made the large room look even brighter. Set between the dark red of the curtained windows stood the mighty Christmas tree, towering almost to the ceiling, a shining angel at the top, a sculptured manger seen at the base. It was decorated with silvery tinsel and white lilies and flooded by the soft light of the candle flames that flickered like distant stars. A row of smaller trees trimmed with candy and more burning wax candles had been arranged on the table, which extended from the window almost to the door, its whole length covered with a white linen cloth and laden with gifts. The gas jets along the walls were lit, and thick candles were burning on four candelabra, one set in each corner of the room. The larger presents that did not fit on the table had been placed in a long row on the floor, and at either side of the door were smaller tables, likewise covered with white linen, each ornamented by a little tree with candles aflame and laden with presents, the gifts for servants, for the servants and the poor. Dazzled by the light and feeling out of place somehow in the familiar old room, they went on singing as they filed past the manger, where a waxen baby Jesus appeared to be making the sign of the cross, and then, after a quick glance at the various decorations, they, they took their places and fell silent. Hanno was completely confused now. The moment he had entered the, the moment he entered the room, he had spotted the theatre that his eyes were seeking so feverishly. There on the table, a splendid theatre, looking much larger and grander than he had even dared imagine. But Hanno ended up in a different place, directly across from where he had stood the year before. And this so disconcerted him that he seriously doubted whether that marvellous theatre was really meant for him. Something else bothered him, too. Sitting on the floor, right below the stage, was a large, strange object, something that he had not asked for. A piece of furniture, a kind of wardrobe, perhaps? Was that for him? Come here, my child, and look at this, Madame Woodenbroke said, opening the lid. I know you love, I know how you love to play chorales. Herr Führer will give you whatever lessons are necessary. You have to pump with your feet the whole time, sometimes harder and sometimes not so hard. And you never lift your hands, but only change your finger positions, peu à peu. It was a harmonium, a pretty little harmonium of polished brown wood with metal handles on both sides, a bright, 
a brightly colored treadle bellows, and a graceful little revolving stool. Hanno played a chord, and a gentle organ tone was released, so that all the others in the room looked up from their own gift. gifts. Hanno hugged his grandmother, who pressed him gently to her. Then she let him go and began to receive the thanks of everyone else. He turned to his theater. The harmonium was like an overpowering dream, but he had no time to explore it more closely just yet. There was such a surfeit of good things that you could only pass quickly from one to the next, trying first to get some picture of the whole, but without feeling real gratitude for any single item. Oh, look, there was a prompter's box, shaped like a seashell, and behind it was the red and gold curtain that rolled up majestically. Excuse me. The stage was set for the final act of Fidelio. The poor prisoners stood with their hands folded. Don Pizarro, with massive puffy sleeves, stood in the foreground, striking a terrifying pose and striding hastily in from the rear came the minister, who was dressed all in black and would now set everything to rights. It was just like in the municipal theater, almost even more beautiful. The jubilant chorus of the finale echoed in Hanno's ears, and he sat down at his harmonium, intending to play the part of it that he remembered. But then he stood up again and reached for the book of Greek mythology that he had asked for. It was bound all in red, with the golden Pallas Athena on the cover. He first sampled some candy, marzipan, and gingerbread from his plate, then inspected the smaller items, writing utensils and notebooks, and forgot everything else when he saw the pen holder, topped by a tiny glass sphere. It was magic. If you held it up to your eye, you suddenly saw a whole Swiss landscape. Mademoiselle Severin and the housemaid now moved about the room with refreshments, and Hanno found time to look about him as he sat dunking a cookie in his tea. Chatting and laughing, People stood beside the table or walked up and down alongside it, showing off their own gifts or admiring those of others. There were objects of every sort, made of porcelain, nickel, silver and gold, of wood, silk and linen. On the table was a long row of gingerbread cakes, glazed and sprinkled with almonds, alternating with loaves of marzipan bread, so fresh they were still moist inside. The presents that Frau Permanator had wrapped or decorated, a needlework bag, a doily to put under a potted plant, and a hassock were trimmed with large satin bows. Now and then, relatives came over to little Johann, and laying an arm on his shoulder and stroking his sailor suit collar, they would examine his presents and admire them with the ironic exaggeration adults typically show for the treasures of children. Only Uncle Christian was free of this adult arrogance. He sauntered over to Hanno's chair, he wore a new diamond ring, a gift from his mother, and he was as delighted with the puppet theater as his nephew. "'By George, that's a dandy,' he said, raising and lowering the curtain. He took a step back to size up the scenery. He fell silent, looking strangely serious, as if troubled by something, and his eyes wandered about the room. "'Did you ask for it?' "'I see. So you asked for this, did you?' he suddenly said. "'Now why was that? Where did you get that idea? Have you ever been to the theatre?' "'Oh, you saw Fidelio, did you?' "'Yes, they did it well. And now you want to stage it yourself, is that it? Put on your own operas? It impressed you that much, did it?' "'Well, listen to me, boy.' Let me give you some advice. Don't spend your time thinking too much about such things, theater and all that. It won't get you anywhere. Trust your uncle. I've always been too interested in the stage myself, and I've never amounted to much. I've made some big mistakes, let me tell you. He lectured his nephew with sober insistence, while Hanno looked up at him with curiosity. But then, after a pause, during which his bony, gaunt face brightened again as he examined the theater, he suddenly brought one of the figures forward on the stage, and, in a hollow, croaking vibrato, began to sing, Oh, what horrible offenses! And then he pushed the harmonium stool over in front of the sage, stage, 
sat down, and began putting on an opera, singing and gesticulating, now waving his arms in imitation of the conductor, now playing the various roles. Several members of the family gathered behind him, laughing and shaking their heads in amusement. Hanno watched with genuine delight. After a while, however, to everyone's surprise, Christian suddenly stopped. He fell silent, and a restless, earnest look passed over his face. He rubbed his hand across his bald head, and then down his whole left side. He turned around now to his audience, his nose wrinkled up, his face drawn and anxious. "'You see, as usual, I have to stop,' he said. "'The same old punishment. I can never have a little fun without paying for it. It's not a pain, really. It's an ache, a vague ache, because all these nerves here are too short. They're all simply too short.' But his relatives took his complaints no more seriously than his jokes, and said little or nothing in reply. They casually drifted away again. Christian sat staring mutely at the theater for a while, blinking his eyes as if deep in thought. Then he got up again. "'Well, my boy, have fun with it,' he said, stroking Hanno's hair. "'But not too much. And don't neglect your schoolwork because of it, you hear? "'I've made my share of mistakes, but now I'm off to the club. <laughs> "'I'm going to the club for a bit,' he called to the other adults. "'They're having a Christmas party, too. Until later.' And he left, walking down the columned hall on stiff, bowed legs. Since they had all eaten lunch earlier than usual today, they consumed large amounts of cookies and tea. But no sooner had they finished than a large crystal bowl filled with a yellow grainy puree was passed around. Almond cream, a mixture of eggs, ground almonds, and rose water. It tasted quite wonderful, but one food spilled too much and you ended up with the most awful stomach ache. Nevertheless, even though Madame Buddenbrook begged them to leave a little corner for dinner, they helped themselves freely, and Clotilde performed miracles. In, graceful sil in grateful silence, she spooned up almond cream as if it were porridge. And now came little glasses of Sabayon to refresh their palates, served with English plum cake. Gradually they drifted back into the landscape room, and, setting their plates down, gathered in little groups around the table. Hanno stayed behind in the dining room alone. Little Elizabeth had been taken home, but for the first time he was allowed to stay for Christmas dinner on Mengstrasse. The servants and the poor had departed with their gifts, and out in the columned hall Ida Jungmann was, was chatting with Rika Severin. Although, as a governess, Ida was, Ida, as usual, preserved a proper social distance when talking with a domestic. The candles on the tall tree had burned down and gone out, leaving the manger in darkness. But a few candles were still burning on the trees on the table. Now and then a sprig would crackle as it was singed by a nearby flame, adding to the fragrance that filled the room. The least breath of air brushing the trees made the tinsel shudder and tinkle in metallic whispers. It was still enough again now to hear the barrel organ's soft tones floating in from a distant street on the cold night air. Hanno surrendered himself to the sense and sounds of Christmas. His head propped in one hand, he read his mythology book, and, giving the day its due, mechanically snacked on candy, marzipan, almond cream, and plum cake. The heavy uneasiness of an overfilled stomach blended with the sweet excitement of the evening to create a sense of melancholy bliss. He read about Zeus's struggles to become ruler of the gods, and now and then he would listen for a moment to the conversation in the, in the living room, an extended discussion about Aunt Clotilde's future. <clears throat> Clotilde was by far the happiest person in the house that night. She accepted their congratulations and the general teasing with a smile that turned her ash-gray face radiant. When she spoke, her voice would break with sheer joy. She had been accepted by the Johannes Cloister. 
Working quietly behind the scenes on the board of directors, the senator had got her admitted, although certain gentlemen had muttered in private about nepotism. They were talking now about this meritorious institution, the equal of any home for aristocratic ladies in Mecklenburg, Doberton, or Ribnitz, which offered suitable care and a dignified old age for indigent spinsters from established families. Poor Clotilde was now assured a small but secure pension, which would increase with the passing years, and when, as an old woman, she had finally moved into the highest bracket, she would even be given a quiet, tidy apartment in the cloister. Little Johann spent a few moments, a few minutes with the adults, but soon returned to the dining room. It was not so bright now, and its glories were not so bewildering and intimidating as before, lending it a whole new charm. He found a strange delight in roaming about as if this were a half-darkened stage after the curtain had fallen and he could peek behind the scenery. He took a closer look at the tall tree's lilies with their golden stamens, picked up the animal and human figurines of the creche, located the candle that had illumined the transparent star above the stable of Bethlehem, and raised the long panel of white cloth to look at all the boxes and packing paper piled under the table. Besides, the conversation in the landscape room was becoming less and less interesting. Gradually, ineluctably, it had turned to the one dreadful theme that had been on everyone's mind all evening, but about which they had all been silent until now, out of respect for the festivities, Herr Weinschenk's trial. Hugo Weinschenk gave a little survey of the matter, with a kind of wild cheerfulness, cheerfulness in his expression and gestures. The trial was now in recess because of the holidays, but he reported in detail the testimony of various witnesses, was very lively in his censure of Dr. Philander, the presiding judge, whose biases were only too obvious, and with masterful scorn he criticized the mocking tone that the prosecutor, Dr. Hagenstrom, had thought appropriate when addressing him or witnesses in his defense. But Breslauer had very wittily weakened various pieces of incriminating evidence and had assured him in no uncertain terms that there was no reason at present to even think of a conviction. Now and then the senator would ask a polite question, and Frau Permanader, who was sitting on the sofa with her shoulders raised high, would mutter occasionally, calling dreadful curses down on Moritz Hegenstrom. The others, however, said not a word. Their silence was so profound that Hugo Weinschenk gradually fell silent himself, and whereas in the next room time sped past for Hanno on angel's wings, a heavy, oppressive, anxious silence lay over the landscape room, and continued until Christian returned at half-past eight from the club's Christmas party for bachelors and soutiers. A cold cigar butt was wedged between his lips, and his cheeks were flushed. He entered by way of the dining room, and, stepping into the landscape room, said, Well, children, the tree still looks gorgeous. Weinschenk, we really should have invited Breslauer to join us this evening. I'm sure he's never seen anything like it. His mother cast him a silent, reproachful glance, but the candid, questioning look on his face was one of perfect incomprehension. At nine o'clock they sat down to dinner. Oh, it's so late. As always on Christmas Eve, the table had been set in the columned hall. Madame Buddenbrook said the traditional grace with great fervor, Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and bless what thou hast given us. As always on Christmas Eve, she concluded with a little admonition, the primary thrust of which was that on this holy night they should remember all those who were not as fortunate as the Buddenbrook family. And once this was taken care of, they sat down with a good conscience to a lengthy meal, which began with carp in drawn butter and a vintage Rhenish wine. The senator slipped a few of the fish scales into his wallet, 
so that it would not lack for money throughout the coming year. But Christian remarked gloomily that that was never any help. Consul Kruger had long since dispensed with such precautionary measures. He no longer had any reason to fear the fluctuations of the market. His ship had arrived safely in harbor, even if with only a shilling or two. The old gentleman sat as far away as possible from his wife, with whom he had sparked with with whom he had with whom he had spoken hardly a single word for years, because she persisted in secretly sending money to disinherited Jacob, who at present was in London, Paris, or America, only she knew for sure. They were on the second course, and the conversation had turned to absent members of the family. He scowled forbiddingly when he noticed the boy's weak-willed mother dry her eyes. They spoke of relatives in Frankfurt and Hamburg, even mentioned Pastor Tiburtius in Riga without ill will, and the senator and his sister Tony privately, praised their, privately raised their glasses in a toast to Herr Grinlich and Herr Preminator, who in some sense were still part of the family. The turkey, stuffed with chestnuts, raisins, and apples, was praised by all. Comparisons were made with birds of years past, and it was concluded that this was the largest in a long time. There were roast potatoes, plus two kinds of vegetables, and two kinds of stewed fruit, the bowls heaped so full that each looked like a hearty filling main course, rather than a side dish. They, they drank vintage red wine from the house of Mullendorf. Little Johann sat between his parents and managed to force down a piece of white meat and some dressing. He certainly could not eat as much as Aunt Tilda, and he felt tired and a little queasy. But all the same, he was proud that he was allowed to dine with the adults, proud that one of those tasty buns strewn with poppy seed had been placed on his napkin too, and that there were three wine glasses set at his place, whereas normally he drank from the little gold beaker that Uncle Kreger had given him at his christening. But then, when Uncle Eustace began pouring some oily yellow Greek wine in the smallest glasses, and the ice meringues appeared, red, white, and brown, his appetite returned. He ate a red one, although it hurt his teeth something awful, then half a white, and had to, had to sample at least a little of the brown one, filled with chocolate ice cream. <clears throat> he nibbled on a little waffle, too, and, snipped, and sipped at the sweet wine while he listened to Uncle Christian, who was talking now. He told about the Christmas party at the club, which had been very festive. Good God, he said in the same tone of voice he used when speaking of Johnny Thunderstorm, those fellows were drinking brandy smash like water. How awful, Madame Buddenbrook said curtly, lowering her eyes. But he paid no attention. His eyes began to roam, and his thoughts and memories were so vivid that they flitted like shadows across his face. Do any of you know, he said, what it's like when you've drunk too much brandy smash? I don't mean being drunk, but what it's like the next day. The after-effects are curious and disgusting. Yes, curious and disgusting at the same time. Reason enough for a precise description, I suppose, the senator said. I say, Christian, we are not the least bit interested, Elizabeth Buttonbrook said. But he paid no attention. One of his idiosyncrasies was that at such moments he was impervious to all objections. He was silent for a while, but then suddenly what he had to say appeared to have ripened, and he went on. You go around feeling rotten, he said, and turned up and turned a wrinkled up nose to his brother. Your head aches and your bowels are not in good shape. But then that's the case on other occasions as well. But you feel dirty. And here Christian screwed up his face and rubbed his hands together. You feel dirty, as if you needed a bath. You wash your hands, but that does no good. They still feel clammy and unclean. And your fingernails are oily somehow. 
You take a bath, but that doesn't help. Your whole, fo your whole body feels sticky and grubby. There's something annoying about your whole body. It itches. You're disgusted with yourself. Do you know the feeling, Thomas? Do you know it? Yes, yes, the senator said with a dismissive wave of his hand. But with an extraordinary tactlessness that had only grown worse over the years, Christian went right on, never stopping to think that the entire explanation was embarrassing everyone at the table, that it was totally out of place in such surroundings on such an evening, and described the wretched conditions that resulted from overdoing the pleasures of Brandy Smash, until he finally decided that he had presented it in sufficient detail and gradually lapsed into silence. Before the last course of butter and cheese was served, old Madame Buddenbrook used the opportunity for another little speech. Even though not everything had turned out over the years the way one out of short-sightedness might have wished, she said, nevertheless, there still remained such manifold and obvious blessings that their hearts should be filled with gratitude. Indeed, the interplay of moments of happiness and affliction only proved that God had never lifted his hand from the family, but that he had guided, and would continue to guide, its fortunes according to his deep and wise plan, which will not never make bold to fathom out of impatience. And now, with hopeful hearts, they ought to raise a toast in harmony to the family's health and to its future, to a future that would continue, that would still continue, long after its oldest members present this evening had gone to their rest in the grave, and so on, a toast to the children. And so, then, a toast to the children, to whom this holiday truly belonged. And since the Weinschenk's daughter was no longer present, it was little Johann who had to make the round of the table all alone, and while they all exchanged a general toast, he had to lift his glass with each, starting with his grandmother and ending with Mademoiselle Severin. When he came to his father, the senator touched his glass to his sons and gently raised the boy's chin to look into his eyes. But he did not find them, because Hanno had let his long golden-brown lashes fall deep, deep, until they covered the delicate bluish shadows beneath his eyes. Therese Feischbrot, however, took his head in both hands, kissing him on each cheek with a soft popping sound, and in a voice so sincere that God himself would have found it irresistible, said, Be happy, you good child. An hour later, Hanno lay in his bed, which had recently been placed in a little room off the third-floor corridor, just to the left of the senator's dressing room. He was lying on his back, out of deference to his stomach, which was not on good terms with all the things it had been forced to take in over the course of the evening. But he looked up with bright eyes as good old Ida, already dressed in her nightgown, entered from her room with a water glass, which she swirled in little circles as she brought it to him. He quickly drank the bicarbonate, made a face, and fell back into his bed. "'I think I'm really going to have to throw up now, Ida. There, there, Hanno, just lie still on your back.' But you see now, don't you? Who kept trying to warn you with little signals, and who wouldn't listen? The little boy, that's who. Yes, well, maybe I'll be all right after all. Where will my presents arrive, Ida? In the morning, my boy. Have them brought up here, so I can have them straight away. Right away. All right, Hanno, but first you have to get a good night's sleep. And she kissed him, put out the light, and left. He was alone, and as he lay there quietly enjoying the beneficial effects of the bicarbonate, he closed his eyes and saw again the dining room, full of gifts, glowing in all its brilliance. Somewhere in the distance he could hear choirboy singing, Shot for Joy, Jerusalem, and he saw his theater, his harmonium, and his mythology book, the whole glittering scene. His head buzzed with a gentle fever, and under the disquieting pleasure of his upset stomach, 
His heartbeat was slow, strong, and irregular. He lay there for a long time, feeling queasy, excited, weary, anxious, and happy, and could not fall asleep. And tomorrow there would be a third Christmas party, when presents were opened at Therese Weichbrot's, and he looked forward to it as a kind, and he looked forward to it as a kind of little burlesque farce. Therese Weichbrot had closed her boarding school for good in the previous year, so that although Madame Kettleson continued to live upstairs, Therese had the whole ground floor of the little house on Muhlenbrink to herself. The infirmities caused by her deformed, fragile little body had grown worse in the last few years. And with meek Christian resignation, Sesame Weichbrot trusted that she would soon be called to her heavenly reward, which was, which was why, for several years now, she had assumed that every Christmas would be her last, and tried to lend the festivities, excuse me, and tried to lend the festivities in her little dreadfully overheated home all the luster that her diminished energies permitted. She did not have the means to buy much, and so each year she gave away another portion of her modest possessions, and set under her tree whatever she could possibly do without. Knick-knacks, paperweights, pincushions, glass vases, and scraps of her library, old books with odd shapes and whimsical bindings, the secret journal of a student himself, Hebel's alemanic poems, Cromacher's parables. Hanno had already been given an edition of the Pensées by Blaise Pascal, which was so tiny that you could not read it without a magnifying glass. There was Bishop's Punch in undrinkable quantities, and Sesame's plain gingerbread cake was terribly tasty. Oh my god, I can see the end of the chapter. Oh my god. <laughs> but, <laughs> but every year, Fräulein Weichbrot went about her last Christmas party with such jittery devotion to the task that the evening never passed without some surprise, some mishap, some little catastrophe that made all her guests laugh, but only increased their hostess's mute fervor. A pitcher of Bishop's Punch would topple over and flood everything in sweet, spicy red liquid. Or, at the very moment they all solemnly entered the room to receive their gifts, the tree, with all its trimming, would totter and fall over its own wooden feet. As he fell asleep, Hanno watched last year's accident pass before his eyes. It was just before the presents were to be given out. Therese Weichbrot had read the Christmas story from the Bible so impressively that all her vowels were out of place. And then she stepped back from her guests to stand in the doorway and deliver her little speech. The tiny, hunchbacked woman stood there on the threshold, her hands crossed at her childlike chest, the green silk ribbons of her cap falling down over her frail shoulders, and above her head, just over the door, was a fur wreath with lighted candles that illumined the words, Glory to God in the highest. And Sesame spoke of God's goodness, mentioned that this would be her last Christmas party, and concluded by reminding them that, in the Apostles' words, they were to rejoice, and was so caught up in her emotions that her whole body trembled from tip to toe. Rejoice, she said, laying her head to one side and shaking it hard. And again I say, rejoice. And in that same moment there was a puffing, spitting, crackling noise, and the whole banner burst into flames. Mademoiselle Weichbrot gave a little shriek, and with one agile picturesque bound that no one would have expected from her, she leapt out from under the descending rain of sparks. Hanno remembered that bounding leap the old spinster had made, and it so amused and touched him that he pressed his head into his pillow and laughed for several minutes, a soft, high-strung, nervous giggle. The end of that chapter. How many minutes do you think that was? I'm going to guess 45 minutes. 45 minutes.
49 minutes. 49 minutes of chapter 8. Well, enjoy, all you hemming brainiacs, as we like to say. Later.